Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. To become a supporter of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash 7-Minute Torah. All right, welcome everybody. This week we start a new book of the Torah. It is the book of Bamidbar. The name of the Parsha is also Bamidbar. Bamidbar, as we're going to see in a moment, means in the wilderness. And of course, this entire book takes place in the wilderness. This is the story of how the Israelites make their way from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. We've now been at Sinai for pretty much a book and a half since the middle of the book of Exodus. And as the book of Numbers opens, it tells us that it is the first day of the second month of the second year following the exodus from Egypt. In other words, the Israelites left Egypt a little over a year ago, and they're about to wander in the desert for 39 more years. Today I get to talk with Rabbi Judith Siegel, a colleague and an old friend of mine, about the significance of that wandering in the desert. She's the senior rabbi of Temple Judea in Coral Gables, Florida. She's the senior rabbi of Temple Judea in Coral Gables, Florida. And we're going to talk about a whole variety of things, including wandering in the wilderness and the meaning of the Parsha, what that means for the world that we're living in today. And then we'll go on to talk about synagogues and Jewish camping and Jewish ritual as well. So as always... We'll spend the first portion of the conversation talking specifically about the Parsha, and then we'll go on with a more general conversation after our break. Rabbi Judith Siegel. It's fun to do an interview with someone who I know actually listens to the podcast. You know the format, you know how it all works. Well, the funny thing is, I really did. I I went to listen already this week, and I went, oh, it's going to be me this week. (laughs) Well, on that note... Welcome, Rabbi Judith Siegel, to 7-Minute Torah. Thank you. It's really an honor to be with you. And I have to start our conversation with my fellow New Orleanian by saying, Les et les bons temps roulés. (laughs) Absolutely. Which means let the good times roll. Although I found out recently that that's actually bad French. It's the only French I know. (laughs) I know here we are, both from New Orleans and neither of us speaks French. So you and I have known each other a long time, probably longer than we've actually known each other because our families have known each other. We're both from New Orleans. We both are products of Jacob's Camp. And these days you are the senior rabbi of Temple Judea in Coral Gables, Florida. I am. I've been here for going into my 18th year, which is just amazing. A really great, great congregation, great community. Amazing. So this is your high year then. Yes, it is. We'll be celebrating. So we're reading Bamidbar. We're starting a new book of the Torah. In English, we call it numbers because it's all these numbers, the census, the appointment of the Levites, they're counting people, they're counting shekels. There's just numbers after numbers. But in Hebrew, it's called Bamidbar, which means in the desert or in the wilderness. 
Um, and when we talk about a desert, I think we picture sand and dry heat. But in Hebrew, midbar actually means a wilderness, an in-between place. So let's talk a little bit about the importance of wilderness. Why do you think that's so important in this parsha and in this book? So that's exactly what I want to focus on is that that midbar, that wilderness. Because when you think about it, it might have made more sense I don't know, for God to give the Torah and for all the, the important things that happen in the wilderness, like to happen maybe once they got to the promised land or maybe at some other time, but it all happened in the wilderness. And in fact, the, the Jewish people, the people of Israel really became a people and a nation while they were wandering in the wilderness. You know, this particular parsha, it does have a lot of numbers a lot of organization of like the people and, and the numbering of them. But the idea that all of this is happening in a place that is, I mean, a wilderness is typically not organized, right? It's kind of open in great contrast to the name of where the people are coming from, Mitzrayim, which is, of course, a place of narrowness. So to go from a place of narrowness to an open place and to become a people in that open place, I think historically has some real importance and relevance. And then I can't help but jump from that right into where we are today as a Jewish people. And thinking about, it's really gotten me thinking about the wilderness that we're in right now as Jewish people. You know, a lot of important things happened in that wilderness in, in the Torah including, of course, you know, the giving of Torah, of laws. And so all of this good, important structure and way of life really came out of that wilderness period. So if you apply that to the time that we're living in now, I want to think about, and I have been thinking about, what is it that is coming out of this wilderness, this mm. period of time today, you know, as a Jewish people, and also just as people coming out of COVID, coming out of a time that was, you know, I think will become to be called the great pause, right? Like this time that everything stopped in an unexpected way, in an unplanned way, and we were in a wilderness. You raised two really interesting questions. So if it's okay, let's let's take the first one and then the and then the second one. It's really interesting to think about the fact that Torah is given in the wilderness. It might have made more sense for the Torah to be given in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, of course, the holy city. That's the place where, as the book of Deuteronomy says, God's presence will come to rest. And yet instead, the Torah, the laws, the structures of Jewish peoplehood, the structures of covenant of our relationship with God, it all happens in this kind of in-between place, the place that's, as you point out, no longer Mitzrayim, no longer the narrow place of Egypt, but not yet the promised land. Why do you think that it is that way? Why, did, why do you think that the Torah gives us this story of us becoming a people in this in-between place that's neither, literally neither here nor there? Well, because I think that, you know, those liminal spaces are really important in Judaism. And we see that, you know, throughout our tradition where, you know, we have those liminal moments, everything from going from Shabbat to the rest of the week and having that moment of Havdalah where we separate between Shabbat and the rest of the week and have that little ceremony that I think most people who 
do a Havdalah ceremony, they find it incredibly meaningful and incredibly spiritual because it's in that moment. It's like as the sun is going down and Shabbat is no longer, but it's not yet the week. And um, it, it just seems to be a time where uh, creativity can blossom in those liminal moments, right? With the, the moments that are neither here nor there. And then we see it also at the High Holy Days, I think, where we can stop, pause, and it's not quite the new year yet, but we haven't quite finished the old year and we get our prayers in, in those last moments. Those are powerful moments of transformation, of opportunity, of growth, of expanse, of wideness, just like the desert like the or the wilderness where you know anything can happen. By the way, many people who go to Israel find those moments in the Negev, if they're able to go, as some of the most powerful because they're just standing there. We hear it from teens all the time, right? When they go on teen trips to Israel, but adults as well, when they go to Israel and they're able to have those moments in just that wilderness of the desert and look up at the sky and see the stars, it's it's just this wide open place that you know seems to help us as human beings to find creativity, openness, connection, and spirituality. Yeah, it seems to me that part of what all those things have in common is the act of taking yourself out of the normal, out of the day-to-day. The high holidays are that for sure. And I often feel that every year we have this 10-day period where, as you point out, it's not last year and it's not yet next year, right? It's actually none of the above. And in those moments where you take yourself out of the the day-to-day, there actually is the opening up of opportunity. And I think the physical desert or wilderness is, is maybe the same, right? And most of us, I mean, there are people who live in the desert, but most of us don't. And so you, you enter this place, you look up at the stars and you see the literal wideness of the sky, which we usually can't see. It's blocked by buildings. It's blocked by the lives that we're living. But then you enter the desert and you can see the incredible wideness of it. The, the rabbis, there's a midrash. I think it's from Bamidbar Rabbah, but I I didn't look it up. Um, the rabbis say that that they ask why was the Torah given in the wilderness, and they say it's because it's hefker, because the wilderness is ownerless; it doesn't belong to anybody, and so and so therefore the Torah doesn't belong to anybody in particular. It's just wide open with opportunity. You know, one way to look at the liminal moments of your life is to say I'm. And floating along like a driven leaf, you know, those moments can be frightening, they can be scary. But at the same time, those moments, I think, as you say, are wide open with all kinds of possibilities that the day-to-day doesn't always contain. Well, I wanted to share a different midrash from Bamidbar, but it's, I love that one. That's beautiful. And it connects this same, the the very first verse um, of Bamidbar, it connects it with a verse from Jeremiah that says, O generation, behold the word of Adonai, have I been like a wilderness to Israel? And it explains that compared to the slavery in Egypt, the wilderness experience was a luxury, a luxury Mm -hmm. that, you know, to have that kind of freedom. And, um, you know, some people think of that as the weekend, right? Like just, if just, uh, I would say in American culture, that's kind of what the weekend is. It's like, okay, no more work. There's this luxury of a weekend, but Um, And this is where I want to kind of jump to um, what's happening today. If we can, you know, people fill up their weekends with so many activities, so many things going on that like it becomes almost like work also. Right. And 
I mean, we remember that Shabbat is given to us as that sort of luxurious time um, every week to actually stop and that we're supposed to stop a lot of the activities of our normal week and really take that time off. And Shabbat kind of forces us to do that or, or really encourages us to do that. One of the things that COVID, I think, did and a pandemic did for us, while, of course, acknowledging the horrific tragedies and losses, one of the things that it did in terms of pausing regular activity is it it forced everyone to stop, to stop with the busyness of life and to give us, in a sense, that luxury of just a break of time that was in a way liminal because we didn't know when it was going to stop, when it was how long it was going to be. And it, it's, I think, going to be a very interesting thing to look back on in a few years to see how did it or did it change us? Has it changed our society or do did we, and are we right now in this moment, just going right back to, you know, fill up that time, fill up those weekends, fill up Shabbat with a million activities where we don't have that, that pause again. And I've been, I've just been thinking a lot about that in terms of religious life, because, you know, we've seen it. And I think a lot of synagogues have seen that shift, right? During the pandemic, those of us who were fortunate enough to be able to you know, jump onto online, you know, forums and opportunities to connect and to continue to build community online did that, but there was a lot less activity, right? And now communities and congregations and and not only congregations, but all kinds of different communities and religious communities are finding ways now to sort of like rebuild that, rebuild what it what does a community look like? What are the priorities? Do we need to fill everything, you know, fill the calendar with a million activities, or maybe we need to learn a different way of engaging in our spiritual life and our communal life and making those opportunities really more packed with meaning and also with some rest and some space to go back to the meat bar. Like maybe we need more of that time to just be together or to be with families or to just, you know, have time to get to know one another which was something that we saw during the pandemic a good bit. Um, so I, I'm just, I'm very much, you know, thinking about in terms of our peoplehood that developed and was created in that wilderness. I feel like we have another opportunity right now to, to really create community in a new way. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Rabbi Judith Siegel about wilderness, both ancient and modern, and what we have to learn from it. While we take our break, let me take this opportunity to invite you to a community conversation and learning session that we'll be having through La Asok. It's happening next Thursday, May 25th, which is the day that Shavuot begins, and it's called, Do We Really Still Believe in the Chosen People? We'll be talking about the concept of chosenness in Judaism, both in terms of where it comes from and also in terms of how we might approach it as modern liberal Jews. You can sign up at the La Sok website, laasok.org, by clicking on Current Classes. I also want to say thanks to all those who support 7-Minute Torah on a weekly basis and remind you that you can do so either through patreon.com slash 7-Minute Torah or if you go to laasok.org, L-A-A-S-O-K.org, and click on support, 
You can give a one-time donation or a monthly donation to support the production of this podcast. And now back to our conversation with Rabbi Judith Siegel. Welcome back. We've been talking about this notion of wilderness, the idea of the wilderness as an in-between place, both the ancient wilderness where the Israelites wandered, as well as this post-COVID moment where the world has changed. And I really appreciate that comparison you've made. If entering the Midbar, entering the, the wilderness, is a process of breaking down structures, you're leaving Egypt, you're breaking down the structures that you've known, and then it's an opportunity to build new structures. And you're right, I can remember those early days of the pandemic where the highways were empty, the streets were mostly empty, people were mostly at home, and, and it was scary, but it was also so refreshing. The air was clear. There was less pollution. I remember I walked my dog every morning and it was so quiet in the mornings. And and now, as you point out, we're sort of back to normal. It's loud again. It's smoggy again. You know. And so the question is, what have we learned? Are we headed toward something different? I, I think we have learned something. I know my life feels different than it did a few years ago. I think lots of people have made changes in terms of family time, in terms of how they work, when they work, where they work. Uh, lots more people are working from home. Um, lots more people are working in a hybrid situation. If I can speak personally for a moment, I made a commitment over the last few years to make sure that I'm at family events because you know that uh, my family is in the States and here I am in Canada. So there were a couple of years there where I didn't get to see them. And so, you know, I then sort of recommitted myself to make sure that future family events, I'm present in a different way. And so I think we've learned a lot. The question now is, do we take those learnings and do we use them to build new structures? Do we use them to continue to further the process of moving through the wilderness towards some kind of promised land? Or as you point out, do we go back to where we were and forget that this great pause actually taught us something? So I wonder, you know, as you look at Judaism, do you do you see us headed towards something different? Do you think we learned anything? And are we going to be able to apply those learnings toward building a stronger and better Jewish community and Jewish life? I hope so. <laughs> I hope we don't, you know, waste this opportunity or um, lose this opportunity because, and look, I mean, I think your podcast is a great example of something really creative and wonderful that came out of the the pandemic. I know, by the way, it's funny that you said you walk your dog because I walk my dog and we listen to your podcast all the time, uh, which is pretty too. great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The dog too. And, um, and, you know, one of the, what, that's just one of many examples, but, you know, we've been able to now bring in scholars, you know, on Zoom, via Zoom that honestly, you know, congregation, many congregations or smaller communities might not have been able to afford to bring in a scholar from, you know, all over the world. By the way, you've done a beautiful job of that on the podcast too, of, you know, interviewing people. Now we have the technology to do that. We can, you know, to do that, I'll just use, you know, the example of Rabbi Sally Preeson, the first woman rabbi ordained by Hebrew Union College in 1972. And she, I think you interviewed her also um, upon the anniversary of her ordination, the 50th, the 50th um, anniversary we also, you know, were able to bring her in via Zoom, and that was a really special opportunity that we probably wouldn't have necessarily had 
um, without the technology to do so, right? And now we have people who, people who were not necessarily synagogue going people who now, you know, get online for services every single Shabbat and won't miss it. Now they might not be coming into the sanctuary. They might never come into the sanctuary. In fact, we've had many people who joined our synagogue from other places, like outside of Florida, just because they loved watching online. I mean, that's that's amazing. Those were people who didn't have that connection to community at all. So I think we are bringing some of those things into the community. But again, I, I just think that we need to consciously be thinking about how we do that. And what are we going to do to make um, this particular midbar, this particular wilderness into the most meaningful one? And of course, now we have like, I think the AI technology and, you know, chat GPT, that's all going to be very interesting to see how that has an impact on our, you know, building Jewish community as well as we go forward. I think that's a, an additional layer of sort of wilderness <laughs> that we're all figuring out together and how that's going to play out um, is going to be very interesting too. We are in this time of great change right now. Technologically speaking, you talked about AI. I think there are changes to the ways that people are living their lives and working and worshiping. Um, for me personally, I, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of creating this virtual Beit Midrash where people are coming together to study both through the podcast, but also online through Zoom. Do you think it's possible to create community in these online ways, or are we somehow depriving ourselves, selling ourselves short by thinking that either AI or Zoom or technology can fill these ancient needs we have for connection with each other? I think it's a very important question, um, and we're all grappling with that, I think, um, in Jewish communal life, and I, and I imagine in religious communal life overall. Um, you know, I don't think that, I don't think anyone can argue that, you know, a Zoom call is the same or as good in many ways as being in person. You know, there are a lot of things that we miss out on in terms of being in person. However, there's, you know, there are pros and cons, right? There are people who never would be able to be there if not for the technology. And they're also, look, I mean, the, the whole reason we went over to using Zoom and, you know, and, and virtual uh, tools was because it kept us healthier, right? Like it, it kept us from getting sick. And there still are many people who are ill, whether it's COVID or otherwise, that it's safer and healthier for them to uh, be home and be engaging in Jewish life and study and learning and worship from home. So I think that there's, personally, my opinion is that I think we'll always have it now. I think it'll always be a part of our Jewish community, um, learning and worship. I don't think that um, we're, we're getting rid of it anytime soon. And not only that, but it helps us to achieve other goals too. I mean, we have people who in our community, we have plenty of people who are ill or homebound or in the hospital who really want to connect. And they can't otherwise, you know, so this is a way for them to connect. Uh, we also, um, I love what you're doing, Micah, with, with the, what do you call it? The, the virtual yeshiva? Virtual Beit Midrash, I've been calling it. La'asok is what it's called. 
I love that. Um, and we've also moved all of our education is now hybrid, right? Is in person and online in our synagogue, which I love. And I've learned how, you know, we've learned new skills, all of us, and how to do everything on Zoom and to make it as user-friendly as possible and engaging as possible so that people can still, yes, they can have those one-on-one conversations and yes, they can do learning. Um, and we're even, you know, we're playing with that in our B'nai Mitzvah training as well, um, because that's another area where it used to be very difficult for some of our families to get to the synagogue to do their Hebrew school training, um, to drive through traffic and all of that. And yes, it's much more convenient to do that from home, you know, mm -hmm. but then there's also, you know, we're kind of looking at, is there a, is there a loss though? also in not sitting next to your Hebrew tutor, for example, while they point to the word, you know, or, or point to the letter, there are certainly are benefits and there certainly are some, you know, some, some problems or challenges with it. But I don't think that, um, I don't think that our communities will ever be the same. I, I think that, you know, we'll always have the technology now that will learn lots of different ways to utilize to continue to build and strengthen community. I don't think it's gonna take the place of being in person though. I mean, you know, and, and with AI too, I mean, there's just, we know there's so many risks and there's so many problems and challenges there that we have to be watching um, and carefully analyzing, I think in the ways that we utilize them. Right, and maybe the lesson is actually that we need both or that we benefit from both, I think. You know, as I've been building this initiative that I've been working on, I have very specifically not thought of it as a synagogue. Um, it's a learning center. People are coming together to learn. I'm not running services. I know there are other uh, virtual communities that do run services. And of course, during the pandemic, we ran services online through um, through Zoom. I imagine you did something similar. And so I think I think there's a space for that. But in terms of what I what I've always been looking for. I think that there is benefit to the in-person, especially when it comes to worship and singing together and sitting beside each other. And so I think we can learn online and we can form communities online. I'm now forming learning communities with people I've never met, people who live in other countries, people who live on other continents. It's amazing. And yet I also recognize that I don't think that fills all of our religious needs. I think we still need to stand shoulder to shoulder as we're said to have done at Sinai and to actually share the religious experience with people who are who are in the same room with us. Beautiful. Yeah, and I, I think that um, it's gam begam in Hebrew, right? Like both this and that, we wanna have both within our community. And I think, you know, to bring it back to the, the meat bar to the wilderness, you know, the wilderness has that openness that gives us the freedom to, to try new things, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really, I hope that, that's my hope for the Jewish community, especially, is that we utilize this opportunity not to just, you know, go right back to how everything was done before, but to really think about, by the way, the other thing we didn't talk about is one of the um, opportunities that is now um, very clear in terms of using technology and worship and learning is for people who have any kind of disability, right? Like, I mean, we've learned to do things so differently and to help people who wouldn't be able to, you know, whether because of mobility issues or health issues or um, all, all different kinds of um, abilities, 
that that they might not have been able to engage in Jewish community, we've been able to become more open and inclusive. And that's a very important piece of this too, to be sure that we're being open and inclusive as we move forward in this wilderness together. It's huge, right? It's absolutely huge. There's a story in the Talmud, it's in Tractate Brachot, where one of the rabbis is sick and his colleague comes to him and says, why weren't you in shul today? They didn't say shul. There was no Yiddish in those days. <laughs> um, and he says, well, I, I, I was sick. I was unable. And so the colleague has this sort of amazing suggestion where he says, then if that's the case, we're going to send a runner from the synagogue to tell you when the prayers in the synagogue are starting so that you can pray at the same time. You can't be present. You can't be physically present with us but at least you can pray at the same time as us. So this is a 1,500-year-old story. They never imagined Zoom. They never imagined the kind of technology that we live with, but they did imagine that we have a need to connect with the community, even when we can't physically be with the community, even if that meant just praying at the same time that I know that people are praying down the street in the synagogue. So I think this is a very old need a very deeply seated human need that we have to be part of something and um, that we can achieve that virtually in some ways while also knowing that we need the we need the in-person, the real thing as well. Um, let's take a step back. I want to ask you a little bit about your congregational life and about being a rabbi. And you were ordained in 2006. And am I right that you've been with your congregation your entire career? I have. So do you have a favorite thing about being a rabbi, about the work that you do? I especially love um, being a part of families, longtime simchas, you know, and, you know, both the good and the bad, honestly, like to be a part of these families' lives. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I moved, we moved here. Yes, I was right out of rabbinical school and, you know, just happened to be fortunate enough to find a really a very wonderful community that uh, is a good fit for me and for our family. And so we're able, I've been able to over 18 years, be a part of um, families from, from the time that their children were in preschool to now they're, you know, graduating from high school. And that is just amazing. Um, and recently there was a family that I did, uh, I officiated for three weddings in their family and sadly, a funeral all within a year. Mm. <laughs> it was like, you know, uh, just incredible to be able to really get to know families in that way, you know, in a, in a deep way and help them through both the, the good and the bad times. So I think that's my favorite thing. And, and really getting to watch these children grow up is really a gift and to be a part of their lives. Uh, we just had our what we call Kabbalat Torah, which is like confirmation, but we do it senior year of high school. And these seniors in high school, I knew when they were in preschool in our temple preschool. So just, you know, to, to get to be a part of their lives at those special moments is, is really very meaningful. Yeah. That's the, that's amazing stuff. Have you, uh, have you gotten to officiate a wedding of a kid whose bar bat mitzvah you, um, you officiated? I have. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, there's just, in fact, I've started to now um, ha get have the opportunity to officiate for baby namings 
of kids that I had as teenagers. Like they were teenagers when I came in and now they have children. So that's incredible too. I mean, there's just, you know, there's so many real blessings in being able to stay in a community for that long. Um, and and it's it's really wonderful. And to see the growth of the community, it's it's a it happens to be a growing community. So that's really neat too, to watch as, you know, a smaller synagogue is just growing and um, and thriving, which is, it's really a blessing. Hmm. Yeah, I made the joke that it was your high year, your 18th year, but I guess literally you are part of these people's lives, right? Of you <laughs> building, building lifelong relationships with members of the congregation, which I mean, we get to do as rabbis, but I think also that's part of what being in a congregation is about. It's this multi-generational lifelong relationship that we build with one another when we really build these strong communities. Can we talk about camp for a minute, just because you and I went to camp together? And, and so I, I wonder, you know, what role has um, has camp played in your rabbinate? Um, and have you continued to be active in Jewish camping? Sure. Well, camp to me, camp is everything, you know. Um, yes, we both grew up at Henry S. Jacobs camp, which was not only a wonderful place for both of us to grow up and our siblings, but also our parents. And, you know, in my case, my grandfather was um, involved in starting and building Jacobs camp. So that was a very special place to me and my family and still is. Uh, my brother being the um, camp, the chair for the camp committee at Jacobs Camp still and being very involved there with lots, we have lots of nieces and nephews and cousins going there. So that's wonderful. Um, but because we're in a different region, we're at the camp in the Camp Coleman region, which you know well also, um, that is where our kids have connected. And I'm so so very grateful for that connection too for them because I just think Jewish camping is the greatest. It's the greatest gift that um, people can give their children and grandchildren um, because it gives them a sense of Jewish identity, their strong, strong Jewish identity. So all three of our kids will be at Camp Coleman this summer. They um, at different, you know, in different positions, counselor, CIT and camper. And our synagogue continues to have a very strong relationship with the camp. Um, particularly with our staff serving as faculty at camp. I have done that right now. Our associate rabbi is going to be serving as faculty this summer. Our educator also does work with them. And we've also created some joint positions over the years, which have been really, really beneficial to have some of our staff working at camp uh, during the summer and with the synagogue, with the youth of the synagogue during the year. So that's been a great relationship too. But look, I mean, camp was definitely part of what pushed me into the rabbinate for sure. And uh, I think that it's going to continue to be a very important place to help young people to strengthen their Jewish identity. And I hope to help um, encourage people to consider the rabbinate as a real you know, path um, if if that's the right path for them, the rabbinate, the cantorate, or becoming Jewish educators. Yeah, it's all true. And, you know, some of my earliest memories actually um, involve camp, as you said, at Jacob's camp in Utica, Mississippi. And I can picture on Friday night, we would all walk together to the Merkaz, right? That flagpole in the middle, and we would sing, and we were all wearing all white. And I can picture the rabbis walking around the flagpole telling stories. I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about because you were there too. And in many ways, that shaped my image of what a rabbi looked like. So I think not only did I fall in love with Judaism at camp, but I also 
I think that camp propelled me toward what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to hear more of those stories and then I wanted to tell those stories and then I wanted to lead those services. And then all of a sudden, 30 something, almost 40 years later, here I am, right? Doing what I do because those rabbis told stories around the flagpole in the 95 degree heat, 100% humidity of July in Utica, Mississippi. Definitely. And actually, I'm glad you said that because with that actually, yes, I have that exact same memory. And you reminded me, really part of what led me to become a rabbi was a conversation. And I very specifically remember with Rabbi Harry Danziger from Memphis, Tennessee, a temple Israel, a longtime rabbi and, and now colleague. Um, and Rabbi Danziger taught me when I, when we were on kibbutz, which was um, a, a program for 16-year-olds, so I know I was 16, and we were talking about Torah and the role of Torah in our lives. And I remember he taught us this lesson about, like, is Torah the word of God? What is Torah to us? And it was the first time that I really thought about how the Torah could be something holy and sacred even if I did not believe every story and it was exactly factually true. And that was something I had kind of grappled with before, but Rabbi Danziger helped me, you know, in these, like, while we were sitting in these like army tents in the middle of the woods. So to go back to the wilderness, honestly, we were really in the wilderness there. Um, and Rabbi Danziger sat with us and talked to us about well, what is the role of Torah for each of us? And it was the first time that I thought about that very seriously. And it is what helped to, um, to use your word, propel me into thinking about going into the rabbit. And I didn't, I didn't think about it right then. Like I didn't know right at that moment I wanted to be a rabbi, but it did. Um, I kept going back to that thought process and that, that, that he kind of sparked in those moments at camp, which happened so often at camp because the rabbis, cantors, and educators come to camps and are able to have that time and space to have those conversations. So that too, you're right, Micah, and I'm glad you brought it up. Um, not only do we have, you know, the Jacobs camp in common, but also those camp experiences and having rabbis in the midst in, in that kind of wilderness is also an opportunity for our young people to start to explore more important and um, sophisticated ideas about Judaism and questions that they might have had that they might never have gotten to ask or gotten to explore or gotten to sit with the rabbi and discuss. And I remember thinking like, I, I love that he took us so seriously. Like, you know, he wasn't treating us like children, you know, telling children stories. He was really engaging with us in a thought process that was important for us. And that, that certainly made a difference in my life. I didn't think about this as I was bringing up camp, but it occurs to me all the ways that camp is like the meat bar. You are living in tents. You're, you're taking yourself outside of your, um, of your ordinary life. You actually leave behind many of the technologies that we rely on, right? There's no cell phones at camp. There's no, uh, TV at camp, there's sometimes there's barely even a boombox at camp, right? And, and so that openness actually makes for creativity. And that's why I think so much of what liberal Judaism is today has been, what's the word, has been incubated in our camps, both in the reform movement and the conservative movement, as well as the many non-denominational and you know the labor Zionist camps. I think Judaism has been strengthened by camping in the same way that 
Judaism in ancient times was kind of born or reformed in, in the wilderness. And I never thought about it before, but I think it's really a very apt comparison, um, which begs the question of where are we headed now, right? And I don't know that we have time to debate or to, to discuss this whole question, but we are in this moment of transition where we need more, we need creativity. We need to be building for a Jewish future that's not going to look the same as the one that we've been living before. And so I think we need, you know, excited young people like you at 16 to, you know, to sit with us as because we're the old rabbis now and to and to really dream about what Judaism is going to look like and where is it headed someday in the future. Well, I think that this uh, this time is is completely right for that. It really is both, you know, what's going on demographically in the Jewish community and with technology and, you know, this time kind of post COVID, like I, I'm really excited. I think that it is a time of real opportunity. And um, I, I look forward to seeing what kind of creative innovations we come up with as a movement, as, as rabbis, as as Jews, like, you know, what are we going to do with this next bit of time to really make uh, Judaism continue to flourish and be meaningful and, and helpful in our lives, which I think it, it will be. So I want to ask you two more questions, if you don't mind. Sure. And these are the ones that I that I ask everyone that I interview um, about ritual and about books. So I'd love to know if there's one Jewish ritual that's particularly meaningful to you in your life. And then I'd love to know if there's one book recommendation that you have for a book that we all need to read. Okay. With ritual, I think the, it's, it's so basic, but it's Shabbat blessings and blessing our children. Um, we started that, we started, I mean, we've always done Shabbat blessings as a family. I grew up in a family that did that, but specifically laying our hands on our children's heads and saying the blessings for them, the priestly blessing that um, is traditionally said. And sometimes we adjust it a little bit or change the wording of it a little bit for our own children. But I just love doing that. It just is like the most meaningful moment of, I think, our whole week. And um, we've always found a way to do that, even with a busy family and a busy rabbinate. Like we might do it before services early. That's typically what we do. <clears throat> but we always find a way to bless our children every Shabbat as well as the regular Shabbat blessings. And that has been a very meaningful ritual in, in my family, it, especially now that we have one in college. He uh, He'll call home and participate via either FaceTime or something like that. So um, yet another way where technology can help us still continue to connect. You preempted my question. I was going to ask whether you were still blessing your kids, even now that they were taller than you. I mean, now that they were. You know, oh yeah. They passed, they passed me up long ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, definitely. Um, books. That's a harder one. Cause I have so many good books that I want to recommend, but I guess I'll just recommend the latest one. Cause it's so good. What I am reading right now that I love um, is called fierce conversations. And it is an excellent book about how we can use our, the conversations that we have with people to further, to, to be more honest, to be more authentic, to, um, and, and to be more productive, both in organizations and also in our own personal lives. That so much of the time that we're talking is wasted on all kinds of different things. And we get distracted by different things in our conversations, but to have a fierce conversation 
whether it's, you know, to um, promote something that you're trying to achieve at work or to just deepen a relationship really requires a lot of thought and careful attention. And that's what that book is about that I love. And I'll just give you one little tidbit from the book that I also love that I'm trying to incorporate in my own conversations, which is to remove the word B-U-T from your conversations and uh, and use the word, replace it with and. Mm. And it makes your conversation more expansive. There we go. Going back to the wilderness yet again, um, instead of restrictive. So uh, just one little tidbit, but it's a really, and it's a really great book. See, there you go. So Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. Sounds great. I'm going to, I'm going to check it out. Well, I am grateful for our conversation today and to you for taking some time with me. It's nice to catch up with you. And I'm really appreciative of being able to, to have this conversation today. Micah, thank you so much, not only for the opportunity today, but really, I think your podcast is wonderful. And I think I've recommended Seven Minutes of Tour to so many people. And I really think what you're doing is phenomenal. So thank you. Thank you. You make, our, you make our dog walks very, very much more interesting than they would have been otherwise. <laughs> That's my goal. And I'll look forward to your dog's feedback on our conversation today. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Rabbi Judith Siegel for joining me today. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I liked how we were able to bring so many things like camp and COVID back to the idea of wilderness, of openness and creativity. Uh, She gave me a lot to think about. Thanks to all of you as well for joining us and sticking with us through this conversation. And a reminder about that conversation, that learning session next Thursday, May 25th, at noon Eastern on Zoom. That's called, Do We Really Still Believe in the Chosen People? You can sign up for that at lasok.org, L-A-A-S-O-K.org. And I look forward to seeing you in the classroom or back here on the podcast next week. Have a great week. 7-Minute Torah is a production of La Sok, Sacred Texts, Modern Meaning. If you enjoy this program, please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash 7-Minute Torah. For more information about upcoming learning opportunities, go to laasoka.org, L-A-A-S-O-K dot I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. Thanks for listening.